Hey, I want to welcome you to the Marty McLean podcast. This is episode number 18. Today's topic, we're going to talk about warning. You know, there are a lot of famous warnings of Scripture. In Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, he was warned about the Ides of March. Beware of the Ides of March. You remember uh, Paul Revere as he would come into Lexington, the British are coming, the British are coming. So we know that there are warnings. Even, you know, people buy a pack of cigarettes. So there's a warning from the Surgeon General. This stuff can kill you, but people are going to still smoke. They're still going to chew. It's going to still, you know, it's just going to happen. But people are given warnings. At least they know what they're dealing with. Uh, we need to be warned. People in our culture, in our nation, in the world today, there needs to be warnings. And if a warning comes from God, then I would think that people really especially need to be warned about that. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel was given this word from God. He's had this vision, and he gets this word from God. And God lets him know in, all, in no uncertain terms, Ezekiel, I'm going to give you the message, and you're going to have to warn the people. And you have to warn them. You have to tell them what I want you to tell them. As a matter of fact, this is how he is told in no uncertain terms in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17. This is what God tells him. He says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way. To save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wicked ways, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. I don't know about you, but that's pretty sobering stuff when you read that in Ezekiel. Now, some people say, you know, more that's Old Testament stuff. But here's what the Apostle Paul said in the New Testament in Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul says, you know what? It's my responsibility to declare to you, speaking to the church at Ephesus, it is my responsible to de responsibility to declare to you the whole counsel of God, and I've not shunned my responsibility. I have a responsibility to tell you everything I know. Everything I know about God, everything that's in the, in the scriptures, everything that God's given me. He says, I have faithfully told you everything, and I, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Now, as you've heard me say before, in our day in which we live, we have a lot of people that don't really want to give warnings. Pastors and, and public speakers, Christians, they don't really want to give warning. They don't want to be the negative guy. They don't want to be the guy that has a downer message. They want to be the positive guy, the guy that tells you, you can reach your potential, that you can have five easy steps for this or five great insights for this area of your life or whatever it is. And that's great and that's fine. But also, there are so many warnings in the Bible. You know, you'll probably heard this before, but and it's backed up that Jesus did say more about hell than he did about heaven. If you read the, if you read the parables of Jesus in the, in the gospel, just go read them. Look how many warnings are in the parables. Now, a parable is just an everyday story that illustrates a deeper spiritual reality. And Jesus, Jesus would tell these everyday stories to help his listeners understand spiritual truth. And it's always about somebody being accountable. It's always about somebody having to answer. It's all about, it's all, you know, a lot of times it's about dire consequences for making the wrong choice. I mean, in one place in Matthew 25, he says, 
Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared, prepared for the devil and his angels. I mean, it's pretty heavy stuff. He says in Mark 13, he said, you don't know the hour, nor today. He says, I say to you, watch. In Matthew 10, 28, he says, and do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Seriously, go look at the uh, parables about the rich fool or the, the wise builder who built his house on a rock or the wheat and the tares counting the cost, the rich man and Lazarus, the wicked vineyard workers, uh, the great banquet, the wise and the foolish virgin, virgins, uh, the sheep and the goats. So much of it is about, hey, you better watch. You better be prepared. You better be ready to give an account. And, and this is stuff that Jesus spoke about. This is stuff he taught. This is stuff he would paint these pictures for people to be able to see and understand the spiritual truth that he was communicating to them. So it's very, very important. So much of it is watch, beware. You've got to be ready. And of course, Jesus spoke about eternity. And he talked about there's a, there's a very wide road that goes to destruction. I mean, you know, most people are going down that road, but there's a narrow way that leads to eternal life. Uh, when he talked about hell, he talked about Gehenna. And, you know, some of you said, well, what's Gehenna? Well, it's the Valley of Hinnom. Here's what uh, one writer says in the Blue Letter Bible. He says, Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, is an actual valley in the city of Jerusalem. In Israel's past, it was used as, as a place of child sacrifice. From the reign of Josiah, of Josiah onward, it was used as a garbage dump where the fires burned the refuse continuously. Jesus used it as an illustration of the final judgment of the wicked. Gehenna is the permanent place where both the body and the soul are reunited to spend eternity apart from God. It is located outside the New Jerusalem, the place where believers will be with the Lord. Of course, that's unquote. That's a quote there from the Blue Letter Bible. Just, you know, Jesus spoke about hell. He, he spoke about judgment. Uh, he gave people warnings. A lot of warnings are in the epistles in the New Testament. And so in our day-to-day, when we have people that say, you know, I don't think I need to be negative or giving anybody any warnings, I don't know what in the world they're talking about. Because people need to be warned. Now, I'm going to talk about an issue, and I'm going to give a warning today. Because I believe there are a lot of warnings that were missed. And it's something that is coming back around because we have two Supreme Court justices now that said, hey, we need to go back and revisit the Oberfeld decision. Of course, that's from... 2015, the Supreme Court decision that said that same-sex marriage would be the law of the land in the United States, that every state you'd have to recognize and perform same-sex marriages. It, it is a terrible decision. Now, Justices Thomas and Alito, they have said we need to go back and revisit it. Now, that's one of the questions probably that's going to be asked of, of Amy Coney Barrett when she is going through her grilling uh, during her nomination or confirmation process. They're going to ask questions like that because they, now that two Supreme Court justices have said, you know, we need to go back and review that Oberfell decision. So that means that, you know, it's probably not a good idea that we have same-sex marriage. I never thought it was a good idea. I think it's wrong. I think it's morally wrong, biblically wrong. I think for society it is wrong. And many people said that once you allow that, that then you're going to have polyamory, which would be the marriage of three or more people together. So three or more people, three, four, five people decide they want to be married. And so why can't three people be married? If two people can be, if you can change the definition of marriage, then why can't you continue to change it? And then also we knew that the, the transgender stuff would be promoted after that. And now you have kids being taught that their gender is fluid, that they can be a boy or a girl, that Gender is psychological and not biological, which I think that is erroneous. Gender is biological. You are either a male or female biologically. That's how you determine your gender. 
I will always remember Bruce Jenner, not Caitlyn Jenner. I'm sorry. I, I mean, when he's on the Wheaties box, I, I can't get into this Caitlyn Jenner stuff. I, I don't go for that. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's biblical. And I think that expansion of marriage to be between men and women, uh, two men and two women, I think that's wrong. And then you're just going to have the further expansion of marriage. So I want to go back. There's a little ebook that I, I was writing back in 2014, and I was going to put it out. I was going to publish it. And I got some counsel from some folks that, hey, this is probably not the right time to do this. You probably need to wait. And so I didn't publish it. In retrospect, you know, maybe I should have, maybe I shouldn't have. But, um, boy, it's just, it's just turned out to be so right. Because it's right because it's based upon Scripture. And it's funny how when you live your life and you try to do what the Bible says, it's funny how things kind of reveal itself, how things kind of work out in that direction. Because the God who inspired the writers of Scripture to write the words, thoughts, and phrases that he wanted to communicate through their personality and writing styles and experiences, God knows what's going on. God knows what's going to happen. God knows what's right, and he knows, knows what's wrong because he is the one that determines morality. So here's what I want to do. I want, I want to talk about homosexuality and same-sex marriage, and I want to give a warning. And this warning should have been given in a better way, a clearer way, and a repetitive way uh, back a decade ago. And so I think we missed some incredible opportunities. But here's the deal. Homosexuality is not the only sin in the Bible, and neither is, the, is it the worst sin, but Scripture does say clearly it is morally wrong. Now, I'm not stating my opinion. I'm simply trying to follow the clear teaching of Scripture. I do not think it is loving to fail to warn someone of a sin that the Bible says is, quote, against nature and, quote, shameful. It is one of the sins listed in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 that identifies those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. However, it is a forgivable sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were, you were uh, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, unquote. Now, in regards to singling out homosexuality, note uh, from the Desiring God website, here's what one of the writers says. He says, quote, it's not, only men it's not the only sin mentioned, but it is different from all the rest, at least right now. At this moment in history, contrary to the other sins listed, homosexuality is celebrated by our larger society with pioneering excitement. It's seen as a good thing as the new hallmark of progress, unquote. Now, let me just say this. The self-appointed guardians of our culture only allow positive portrayals of the homosexual lifestyle. Anyone who deviates from this new version of morality must be attacked quickly and brought back in line. Equality and fairness are the prime virtues of the new moral order. Now, I want you to think about it. In the 21st century, homosexuality is a moral issue, but not in the traditional sense. It is a moral issue in regards to equality and fairness. In the eyes of some, those who oppose homosexuality out of religious convictions are now viewed as hate mongers. The debate has changed from one of sexual morality to one of morality of equality and fairness. The times, as Bob Dylan says, they are changing. And this does not bode well for Christians whose conscience are shaped by Scripture. Now, in today's culture, standing on biblical convictions concerning homosexuality can cost you dearly. Now, we must understand that we do not live in a live-and-let-live environment when it comes to homosexuality. The homosexual movement is not static. It is progressive, and in this progression, tolerance is not extended to those who think homosexuality is a sin. 
whether it is the world of entertainment, the business community, amateur and professional sports, or the halls of academia, people are expected to either accept homosexuality as being good for society or to just simply be quiet. This demand for conformity puts a strain on the conscience of Bible-believing Christians. Some are being asked to participate in gay weddings, and when they refuse, they find themselves in lengthy litigation. Many have lost their challenges in court and have subsequently opted to close their business instead of violating their conscience. Others have decided to just be quiet and not let anyone know what they believe about the subject. It is this decision to be quiet that I believe is most damaging. Now, when it comes to moral issues, believers have an obligation to speak truth in love. This is not a time for ambiguity concerning what the Bible says about human sexuality. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, writes, quote, While Christians in other movements and in other nations face similar questions, the question of homosexuality now presents evangelicals in the United States with a decision that cannot be avoided. Within a very short time, we will know where everyone stands on this question. There will be no place to hide, and there will be no way to remain silent. To be silent will answer the question, unquote. Now, our culture needs us to be salt and light, and believers, that's what we are to provide. We're to provide salt and light. And part of, you know, that is letting people know here's what the Bible says and helping people to understand how the Bible addresses moral issues, human sexuality. Those issues are addressed by the Bible. We need to be clear and we need to be persistent in letting others know what the Bible says. Now, in America, there's always been an understanding that marriage is between one man and one woman. Previously, challenges to this understanding were deemed illegal. For instance, in the United States Supreme Court in 1878, in the Reynolds versus United States case, they ruled, the Supreme Court ruled that a federal law outlawing polygamy was constitutional. The two-parent heterosexual marriage was deemed the only legal, acceptable legal arrangement. However, this understanding of the American family had began to change in 1993 with the Hawaii Supreme Court ruling that the state's ban on same-sex marriage was a violation of the state's constitution. Because this was a state issue, at the time, many did not see this ruling as being able to make it to the Supreme Court. Even so, there were some that saw the potential danger that it could do to other states. This concern was based on the fact that each state recognizes marriages performed in other states. For instance, a marriage that had been performed in Alabama would be recognized in the state of Iowa. Therefore, state legislatures began crafting laws and amendments to their constitutions that define marriage as between a man and a woman. Now, the federal government got, into, got involved with the Congress passing the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996. It was called DOMA. Uh, it enjoyed bipartisan support, and even Democratic President Bill Clinton signed it into law. The law basically defines marriage for federal purposes as being between one man and one woman, and it also allowed states not to recognize same-sex marriages performed in other states. Now, over the next several years, state after state enacted laws, and the people passed constitutional amendments defining marriages between one man and one woman. However, all this effort would be undone by the court system. In 2003, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled in favor of allowing same-sex marriages in the state. Consequently, the next year, the same-sex couples began to be legally married in Massachusetts. In response to the change in Massachusetts state law, many other states became more vigilant in defining laws pertaining to marriage. Additionally, in 2004, President George W. Bush called for a federal constitutional amendment 
in order to defend traditional marriage. In the ensuing years, activist state courts in New Jersey and Connecticut legalized gay marriage in, the jurisdic- in their jurisdictions. However, there was still not enough momentum for national political leaders to support gay marriage. This lack of public support was made evident by the fact that both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama opposed gay marriage when they ran for the Democratic nomination in 2008. Now, it's interesting that it, it was the courts that would take the lead on legalizing gay marriage, and the people would vote for all these constitutional amendments to defining marriage between uh, men and women, and state legislatures would pass these laws that would say, hey, marriage is between one man and one woman. Now, one of the most surprising victories for the pro-traditional marriage supporters occurred in California. Believe it or not, in 2008, the state Supreme Court in California ruled in favor of gay marriage. Now, in response to the activist court, the majority of the voters of California 52% passed what was known as Proposition 8. This public ballot initiative defined marriage as being between one man and one woman. The celebration for the passage of this Proposition 8 was short-lived. In 2010, a federal judge ruled that Proposition 8 was unconstitutional, thus setting the stage for the United States Supreme Court to take up the matter, which they did in 2012. Now, the change in time of same-sex marriage was also beginning to affect the highest selected office in the land. During President Obama's first term as president, the momentum for the legalization of gay marriage accelerated. This support grew so much that on May 9, 2012, during the height of the race for his second term, President Obama became the first sitting president to publicly support same-sex marriage. Because of the constant barrage of popular support from Hollywood and the national media, public opinion towards same-sex marriage began to crawl across the majority threshold in public polling. Now, after much anticipation and speculation on June 26, 2013, the Supreme Court rendered their 5-4 to decision that said that the federal government must, must recognize same-sex couples that have been legally married in states that allow such unions. This decision, combined with a favorable ruling on October 7, 2014, made it just a matter of time before every state or constitutional amendment barring gay marriage would be overturned. Of course, that happened on June 26, 2015, with the Oberfell decision. It was a 5-4 decision that legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Once that uh, verdict was rendered, it's as though if you ever held to the belief that marriage is between a man and a woman, you were some type of Neanderthal. That, like, uh, how in the world did you ever get in the room that if you believed in traditional marriage, that was a considered now out of the norm instead of, hey, that's been a standard for thousands of years, and now all of a sudden you've changed the definition of marriage. But no, now if you do not hold to same-sex marriage, you're looked at somebody who needs to be corrected or made to be quiet. Now I want to go back to what it says in the book of Ezekiel. You have to give people warning. It doesn't matter if they want to hear it. You have to tell people, here's what the Bible says. And then some people say, well, shouldn't that just be for the church? Shouldn't we just tell the people in the church with that? No, we're to tell every person. We're to go and make disciples of all the nations. The gospel is good news for everyone because here's the deal. Everybody's, everybody's going to stand before God one day. If you read the book of Revelation, there's, there is a judgment that comes and somebody gets judged for your sins. Either Christ gets judged for your sins when he's on the cross 2,000 years ago and he pays for your sin or else you get judged for your sins and you pay for your sin for all of eternity, separated from God in a place called hell. I mean, that's simply, that's what the Bible says. It's not pleasant news, but that makes the gospel good news and that you can be forgiven and you can spend eternity with God in a place called heaven. You see, there's a danger when we pick and choose what we think people need to hear. 
The truth of the matter is that our personal judgment is very flawed and we're subject to our own prejudices. Additionally, it is human nature to want to avoid rejection and we crave acceptance. Strategies that have a predetermined course not to address controversial cultural issues today are flat out wrong. There's no biblical warrant for such an approach. Now, the Apostle Paul's approach to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens is often used as justification for changing methodologies in order to reach a particular culture. Now, I could not agree more. I accept that. However, it does not serve as justification for not addressing cultural issues. In Acts chapter 17, Paul connected with the Athenian culture by referencing an altar that they had erected that was dedicated to the unknown God. Also, he quoted one of their own prophets. However, when it came down to saying something that he knew would be offensive to their thinking, he did not shy away from it. These philosophers on Mars Hill disdained the thought of a resurrected body. Paul knew that, and all of the connecting with culture would not undo the fact that there was going to be a problem. However, he said what needed to be said, and as expected, some mocked him, but others wanted to know more. You see, some Greek philosophers believed that the body was a prison of the soul, and at death, the soul was liberated from the prison of the body. And so why in the world would you want a resurrected body? But he talks about, Paul talks about Jesus Christ being bodily resurrected from the dead. Now that was going to be an issue, but he did not shy away from it. In Acts chapter 17, on Mars Hill, this, ish, this episode stands as a great reminder that at some point the gospel and biblical teaching will be offensive to the human heart. Here's what it says in John chapter 3, verse 19. It says, And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Remember, light is not always welcomed, but it is always needed. Christians are called to be salt and light, salt and light, make a difference in environments which they're introduced. Also, we, can't, we cannot preach not to offend. We must preach the whole counsel of God. That's why in Acts 20, Paul was saying farewell to his, the Ephesian elders, and he said, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Like Paul, we need to preach it. The very idea that we are not to address moral or cultural issues is preposterous. Now, I believe Carl Lentz of Hillsong Church he might be well-intentioned, but he is extremely misguided when he says, quote, Very rarely did Jesus ever talk about morality or social issues. He was about the deeper things of the heart, unquote. Now, let me just say this. If every preacher in America followed Carl Lentz's advice, then no one would know what to do about human sexuality. We would be clueless. So here it is. Simply teach what the Bible says. We are held accountable to warn people. We are held accountable to deliver the whole counsel of God. And if you've been put in a position of influence and you're given the opportunity when you're asked, do not shy away from it. You may be the one that God wants to use to give a warning to someone. Yeah, it's going to be negative. Yeah, it may make people feel better. It may make some people not like you, but you're not living to be a man pleaser. You need to be a God pleaser. Remember, you can't serve the two masters. You can only serve one. You're, you're going to love one and hate the other. You might as well serve God. So I want to challenge you. Be willing to step up to the plate. Be willing to be bold and courageous. In the book of Ezekiel, he tells Ezekiel, I'm giving you this, this responsibility. And if you don't do it, your, his blood I'll require at your hands. In other words, you're going to have a responsibility. But if you do... Give the warning, you fulfilled your responsibility. Now, I, can't, I cannot 
determine how people will respond to what I say. But if God lays it upon me to say it, I need to say it. And I need to give warning, and so do you. Now, hey, I want to thank you for being with me today on the Marty McLean podcast. I know this has kind of been heavy. Had a little bit of the historical flow of how we got to where we are with the same-sex marriage issue. But never shy away from saying what God says about human sexuality, what God says about right and wrong. Never be ashamed of saying, yeah, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. I mean, that's how it's always been. This new stuff is just in the last few years. But more than that is what the Bible says. And just simply say, hey, my personal beliefs don't matter. My personal opinion does not matter. But what the Bible says does matter. And here's what the Bible says. And make it between that person and Scripture. All right. Thank you for being with me today. I hope you have a wonderful week. And I'll see you next time on the Marty McLean Podcast.